Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The financial services industry impacts us in broad and sweeping ways, perhaps more than any other industry. And technology is forcing legacy institutions to adapt while juggling huge compliance, security, and legacy platform concerns. In this discussion with Jason Henricks, we talk about how financial service companies can adapt and become more successful, leveraging unique frameworks that keep the existing business moving while enabling rapid tests and decision-making. We also discuss how various emerging technologies are going to impact financial services going forward. I learned a ton in this one. I think you will too. So let's get into it. Jason, thank you for joining us. Why don't we start with just a little bit about sort of what it is that you do if someone were to come up to you? I know you are working on several things almost always. So, you know, what are you kind of up to these days? All three things that I described that I do are very highly correlated to each other. The main thing is I'm co-founder and managing director of a company called Fintech Forge, and we're a managed service business that helps financial institutions build or extend their innovation capacity. And we've developed a proprietary way of looking at how do you actually act innovative in a highly regulated environment. And that is as much a set of processes and frameworks that combine the best of lean startup and customer development, business model canvas, but really has to be put into the context of what are the limitations that are being faced by banks, credit unions, and insurance companies primarily. And then Related to that, my partner JP Nichols and I are also the co-hosts of Breaking Banks with Brett King, which is the largest fintech podcast in the world, which you can find for all your listeners at provoke.fm, which is the parent company that we're partners in, which you know really is one of the ways that we extend a lot of what we do in a way to talk to other innovators and really push the evangelism of the need to evolve and better serve our customers within financial services. And then last is I am the chairman of Fintechs, which is a nonprofit industry association growing the financial technology ecosystem in Chicago and the broader Midwest. And we're actually very pleased that we've been asked by a couple of different states to say, hey, can you help us? And so we're actually branching out and saying, hey, how do we take on this cluster building idea and take it beyond where we are today to you know, really promote more innovation from the incumbents down to the startups at building better financial service products that are more inclusive of the entirety of the country. You mentioned some of the regulatory stuff being one of the more unique kind of aspects of trying to make things happen in a financial services type of context. Talk a little bit about that. Like, What are, what are some of those challenges and what are the problems that they sort of run into? And then maybe what are some ways that either they are trying to navigate that now or that you have suggested that folks try to navigate that? Talk a little about that. Yeah, when we think about regulation, it really has three components. First is intent. You know, what is the intent of this new thing that you're trying to do or actually an old thing in terms of what the product does? The second is the policies and procedures around how it's delivered. And the last are what are the outcomes? Well, historically, we've avoided measuring intent because that requires personal judgment and the whole idea behind bureaucracy, not bureaucracy meaning red tape, but bureaucracy meaning everyone is treated the same. It's the faceless organization. Well, so we avoid intent. And outcomes are hard to measure and oftentimes take a long time to develop. Historically, 
the emphasis from a compliance point of view and regulation has been let's audit policies and procedures. And this leads to your people, the processes and technology to be optimized around scalability, reliability, and compliance. And as a result, are very rigid. They're expected to deliver with five nines. It turns out people don't like if you send a wire transfer and it doesn't arrive or a Venmo. It's like, <laughs> hey, you know, we have an 80% success rate. It's like, well, I kind of expected a little bit better than that. Or, hey, you know, we're up 80% of the time. That's not going to cut it. If I'm an application for social payment, that isn't going to work. When we think about innovation, you know, that really is around, you know, we define it at Forge as doing something new to create value. And the emphasis is on new. Well, if you're doing something new, you have to learn. And the antithesis of optimizing for the highly reproducible five nines, learning requires actually having things go wrong. I mean, think back to your high school science teacher. They would tell you if you do an experiment and you already know the result, that isn't an experiment. So how do you actually build these two organizations that can work together simultaneously? We would never suggest, hey, throw out all of your policies and procedures, regulation be damned. Let's treat your core business you know, as if it's a startup. That doesn't work. We've developed what we call an innovation operating system that says for executing your existing business for the types of results that you've come to expect that you can predict with high accuracy and high precision, keep doing you know, the way you're doing it. But when you're looking at something you know, where, hey, it's a field we don't have any experience in, or we need a result that's dramatically different than what we do today, it's like we have a 50% completion rate. If we're gonna take a, a lean approach to improving that completion rate, you might move it from 50 to 55. If you're looking at you wanna get it to 80, you need to go do experiments, do things very different. And that's where our series of frameworks around doing experiments comes in. We actually call it FIRE, building on the forge analogy. How do we do fast, iterative, responsive experiments? Fast meaning how do we shorten the time between the discussion in actually having a result that can be debated. It's iterative because you take that result and you continue to build on it. If you can think your way to the right answer, you know, two years down the path, you're probably not doing something very innovative. And then it's responsive, meaning innovation isn't about taking your giant waterfall and breaking it up into two-week sprints. No, you actually need to be responsive to what you learn and it needs to change your mind. And the last is experiment, you know, again, as we had started, which is, you have to have the expectation that at least half the time, it isn't going to work as you expected. In terms of how you organize around that, do you typically see it where the team that is responsible for the core business or the execution engine is also executing on that stuff? Or are you, do you recommend carving out a, a separate team, almost like a bimodal type of IT sort of setup where you've got mode one and mode two, and mode two has a very different mandate to move fast and break things and they're measured differently and they're all of that sort of thing. How do you recommend organizations start a process of, of getting themselves to a place where they can execute on this fire type of methodology? Our experience has been that for the majority of institutions, if you're looking to actually transform your mainline business, disconnecting it completely from that customer facing experience actually makes it a bigger challenge because 
you need the customer to be driving what innovation looks like. Now, creating a separate group that's focused on innovation, if it's the, hey, we need to completely transform, we need to re- completely reinvent ourselves, we think it's totally appropriate to say, let's go create an innovation team that's completely separated. In the majority of institutions we work with, we actually have found that it's very successful that they work in that bimodal, as you talked about, where they say, here's how we run our core business, and now let's put on our innovation hat, and we call them, you know, they participate on fire teams that have very different objectives. And it's interesting that having worked with several dozen financial institutions now, it actually becomes a badge of honor to spend time on a fire team. And we've also seen an interesting byproduct, which is people carry those practices back into how they actually execute other parts of their job. We've talked about with a large nonprofit uh, focused on the banking industry, we've heard time and time again that job satisfaction actually goes up as a result of feeling like they're doing something new and gives them special purpose in what they're executing on. One of our very first projects about four years ago is we were helping a bank set up a lab. I would say the most successful part of the lab is ideas were killed faster because as it came out of the lab, it immediately had you know 100% organ reject from the mainline part of the business because it, it was just so disconnected. You said that the interpretation was that was successful. Was that something that they immediately understood or did you have to kind of educate them. Oh, no, no, no. That, that was my dripping sarcasm that I would say that was the only part that was successful. And they eventually actually shut it down because they're like, you know, the CFO looks at it and we spent how much money a year doing this? And none of the ideas are going forward. And it was because it was never going to be accepted into the core business because they hadn't been involved in the process. I see. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. When you fold them back in, are there strategies that they use to make it more likely that it's you know, almost like that the body doesn't reject the organ, so to speak. Once you get this team carved out and they're, they adapt to this way of working and they're moving quickly and they fall in love with that approach and they want to bring it back in, but maybe the organization, you know, obviously has its own inertia. Maybe there's some political stuff going on. How do you, how do you maximize the likelihood that the organization, when they do kind of get folded back into the mothership, welcomes that change and adapts kind of accordingly? Oh, one of the important things is the fire team doesn't actually leave its day job. Imagine this. We've asked people to take on more work than they're already doing, and they consider it a badge of honor, and job satisfaction goes up, right? Not what you'd expect. That reason of feeling purpose and that they're helping drive change, you know, and they find some other areas where they can either free up time or was, frankly, time that was being misallocated anyway – But because those people are still in the day job and we run these experiments, they're meant to be as incremental as possible. And those results are being published continuously in terms of what the learnings are. And there's a secondary reason for this because if the whole idea is we will quit doing things that aren't working sooner, I believe it's a Google definition that the only real failure is continuing to pursue something after you've maximized all of the learning. And so that's part of how we change this cultural stigma around stopping a project isn't a failure. Pursuing it, even though we know it isn't going to work or meet our expectations, that's the failure. And so by publishing those things out all along the way, and so the the body is kind of watching that, 
think of it as like using your own stem cells to grow your replacement organ, it doesn't get pushed out. It's not like a fancy consultant can come in and successfully say, here's your innovation strategy, go execute it, you know, call us when you're done and successful, and it's going to be adopted. It's our perspective that the best ideas are by the people who are closest to the business, but what they haven't had is a toolkit and a governance process for how do we actually go take ideas and ground them and evolve them into what will ultimately be successful. When you're teaching a team to think this way, you know, we run into this in general, but I would imagine even more so in a financial services context, they are used to measuring success in a certain way, and they're used to measuring things of a certain size and a certain degree of scale in a certain way. With like some of the incremental stuff, a one, one to 2% lift in some sort of metric is easier. But when you're talking about some of the more disruptive stuff, they probably look really small for a while. How do you teach them or retrain them to understand that the definition of success with an initiative like that is going to look a lot different than how you're maybe used to kind of evaluating success or failure or something. So we've created several lenses for, in particular, the executive leadership teams to create innovation portfolios around. And those lenses need to take into account each organization's individual strategy and objectives. For some, innovation might be focused on new revenue growth. For others, it might be around expense reduction. So they're gonna be heavily focused on the tactical in the back office and what they're doing. For others, it's transformation. We work with a small bank that is in the Midwest that is not growing. In fact, it's shrinking and they realized no matter what we do, our ability to take share against our competitors in a shrinking population environment is relatively limited. We actually need to create a new business unit that is going to act as the banking rails for fintech startups. So that's a transformational lens that they're putting on it in terms of where they're going. When we talk with banks, you know, a lot of what we do is also give them the concept of they need to build a portfolio of these, right? You'd never have your retirement tied up in a single security. Maybe you just pick Amazon and that'll be sufficient, but that would come with a whole host of risks. And so you need to tailor your portfolio to what your strategic objectives are. In your portfolio, building on the portfolio theory, you'd never allocate you know, the same amount to every single thing. You're, you don't say, hey, 25% fixed income, 25% large cap, 25% in small cap, and 25% in emerging markets, and boom, I'm done. That might work you know, at some point in your life, but as you get closer to retirement, you're probably shifting in other things, but you keep small allocations. Artificial intelligence is a great example, especially around doing some of the natural language processing and the ability to translate that into advice and things like this. For most institutions, you can't write a really good business case right now, you know, for that. I, I mean, I, you can, but it's bullshit. I hope this is an over 18 um, podcast. It is now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is now. And sorry, mom, if you're going to listen to this one too. Right. It, it's just made up. And that's one of the challenges is if you're dealing with things that are emphasizing learning, you're either deluding yourselves or it's just never going to pass the hurdle. So you need to redefine what the hurdle is. So using AI as the example, we say don't make a huge investment. 
but begin to you know play with it a little bit in terms of invite some companies in that are you know working in this space, whether that be an IBM or it be a startup to just begin to open your eyes and just be clear, we're in the exploratory phase. It's a small investment. It's an investment of time. Or you know, take the next step, which is, hey, you know, is there a platform that we can redraw what the hurdle is, that redraws what the risk is we're willing to take? We call that in our nomenclature is your fire break. And so what's the risk appetite? What's the investment appetite? And let's run an experiment and see what happens. Do customers engage with it? Do they not engage with it? You can very easily convince yourself that, oh, I'll just be a fast follower and I'll wait until someone else is successful. And that is actually really dangerous. One is the likelihood you will catch up is very low. And that is amplified by the fact that you can't just take the same technology and assume that your customers are going to solve in the exact same way. For each organization, they need to tailor their innovation efforts to their unique strengths, weaknesses, and vision of what they're trying to, to become in the future. Getting back to you know financial services in particular, you know again, as you're doing some of the stuff that's hard to maybe attach a direct ROI to, you and I have talked in the past about, uh, I think it was the Volcker rule, and around how that adds some complexity for banks in terms of being able to execute on things that would be considered sort of speculative um, or make speculative investments and how some of this stuff can sometimes fall into that. That conversation that I had with you was a while ago. Have things changed there in terms of how that's being interpreted? Do these innovation initiatives fall under that? And you know, if so, like how do people mitigate that? Yeah. Volcker was specific to investments in terms of for financial returns and the limits it put. And some of that's been repealed. But if we speak broadly around you know regulation, my view is deregulation isn't the answer and overregulation isn't the answer. I actually think of regulation is monumental. And here's how I define a monument. One, it's normally done in response to something really, really bad that happened. Two, it takes a long time to build. And three, the only thing that tends to visit the monument afterwards are the pigeons. <laughs> when I say monumental, I really mean it's like building one of these monuments that becomes overgrown. The problem with that is deregulation is let's hold back for as long as possible and see what happens. Well, that tends to be really bad. And so then we overreact and go to the other extreme. And then that takes our eye off of the ball. Dodd-Frank's a great example of this. By the time the banks got everything implemented and they're still figuring out if it's working, the world has moved so much further and faster past it. We're creating this backlog of systemic risk. Here's a great example. We work with a state bank regulator and the regulation on the books that they're using applied to cryptocurrency because it's the only regulation they can find that actually applies is pre-Civil War era that was created to regulate the interstate transfer of private currency via steamboat. Wow. Don't, don't see how that could go awry, but it's the only regulation on the books that it's applicable. In the same way we talk about test and learn in our approach to innovation, I think we need to take a very similar approach in how we think about the regulation of it. And we need to not be afraid of 
trying something, it not working and taking it off the books and saying, nope, no longer applicable. You know, the UK did this with the FCA when they decided they're going to be the fintech capital of the world is they actually merged all of the agencies, put them into one that only had two arms. And one of those arms is really around looking at how does it help pursue the innovative side and that prospective aspect and cleared the rest out. Now, we're not going to do that in the U.S. anytime soon, but there are ways that we can take a more engaged, proactive approach. Arizona just passed a fintech sandbox bill. There's lots of discussion with this idea of an OCC that's the Office of Comptroller of Currency doing a national charter that says, hey, not every bank needs to do all of the functions of a bank. You know, this is an important first step. It was challenging when the CFPB first came about and I was running one of the first challenger banks in the world called Perk Street. One of the things they actually did well for as much heat as they take is they would be willing to sit down and have conversations as opposed to historically regulators have been, well, we'll let you know when we come and do an exam whether what you did was right or wrong. In the post-meltdown world, some of the other financial implications of this, like where your auditor isn't supposed to give you guidance in advance of the audit. I'm like, it's almost like having your doctor say, I can't give you any advice until you're sick. Well, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, would it be better if I didn't get sick? Right, right. You mentioned the Arizona legislation around the innovation sandbox. I know that, I don't know if it's, they're using it, the definition of sandbox the same way that you have used it in the past. But for folks that maybe don't know, can you talk about why you believe that having kind of an innovation sandbox inside of an organization is important and then to the degree that it is relevant and that there is overlap with the, that legislation, um, how that is either enabling or making it more difficult to kind of do that? You hit the nail on the head with part of this when we talked about the financial accounting versus innovation accounting. If you take a new endeavor and you try and hold it to the same standards of your existing business, it's not going to match up. This is the innovator's dilemma by Clayton Christensen, that the incumbents have a tendency to overinvest in what they already have because the incremental investment is a lot more certain than pursuing something new. And I like to say the competitive advantage of startups is they're desperate. If I don't figure out how to sell you stuff at a price point that I can make money on I, before I run out of money myself, I will go out of business. And so they will very quickly develop products that customers want versus the incumbents You know, will continue to optimize, get that 2 to 5% growth, cut out 2 to 5% of costs, and it works very nicely. You need the sandbox to say, okay, we can't throw all the rules out. We actually just need a different set of rules. And those are the rules that are first going to govern what are the boundaries of the sandbox. And two, what are the expectations? Because I think you've heard me use this phrase before around innovation theater. The purpose of innovation isn't to, oh, I have an idea. Like these people over in this corner, there's going to be Legos on um, the tables and it's going to have all the slogans. How many companies have you been in that that's their innovation effort? Oh, and they use Macs versus PCs and they don't actually have any outcomes. That's why when I was describing our definition of innovation is you know, it's doing something new to produce a tangible result is really important because – when economies take downturns, 
that's when those programs quickly go out of favor, or even before that, when the CFO says, we spent how much on this lab thing over here? What is it produced? So it needs to actually have an end in mind in terms of the problem you're solving, then be making steady, measurable progress against it. Do you ever run into like a sunk cost thing where even if they identify what they think success or failure should look like or what maybe stage gate criteria might be kind of at the outset, often you run these experiments and the experiments are not, they didn't hit that goal, but they did move some metric or they did accomplish stuff and they didn't go all the way, but they went 80% of the way there or whatever. I mean, how do you suggest folks recognize when, hey, they're going down a, there's a sunk cost issue here versus maybe we set our targets wrong and this didn't quite hit it or this hit it, but we think that if we make these tweaks, it's going to be better. How do you navigate the, the gray area there around success and failure? I mean, it's a great question. It's one of the hardest challenges. And there is this tendency, as we talked about in the core business, no one likes to be wrong, particularly in financial services. If you have a loan officer that has a 5% loss in their loan book, that's you know soon to be an ex-loan officer. But if you have an innovation department that has a 95% success rate, I will tell you, you don't actually have an innovation department. They're just executing on things that are already <laughs> Yeah, that makes right. sense. Yeah. Right. So if you have a 95% success rate, you're not doing something you know, new. The flip side is you can't just celebrate every failure and say, yay, we failed fast. That's the millennial soccer game. Everyone gets a trophy. Let's go home. You actually need healthy tension in the organization and a framework for having the debates on, okay, we got a result. It wasn't quite what we expected. We talk about there's three outcomes to one of these experiments. The I've identified another experiment that needs to be done that de-risks this. I've learned all I can and we should just table it. Or three, it's ready to graduate into the mainstream business and we want to actually roll it out much more broadly and we're going to follow our existing processes for that. And that should be a, a spirited debate. And it's one of the reasons that we take a very strong view on governance that you know we teach around this portfolio that the fire team comes up with what the experiment is and represents it to the governance group. They're the ones proposing which of those three outcomes are there. And that's why we don't want an overfunded project because that's where the inertia comes in and the sunk cost, right? It, and it's one of the reasons you know, we find the CFOs become some of our biggest advocates. One of the things we do to help teach this is we'll take an executive leadership team and we'll sit them down to play poker. Bankroll management. It is because – and so we don't discriminate against one team could have you know a great player. It's like you know put them on teams instead of individuals, 50-50. And then there's this little loophole we say, oh, yeah, um, the team on the left and for any of our clients, you know, listing our prospective clients, we sometimes switch it up. It's the team on the right. They have to place their bet before they see any of the cards. They only get to see what's in their hand. But before typical Texas Hold'em, before they get to see any of the incremental cards, they place their bets and then they're done. Well, guess which team wins? Every single time, it only takes a few hands, but the one that gets to see the incremental cards and can then decide, you know, fold or not fold, they win. And then we turn around and say, then why do you run your business this way where you fund a two-year plan to go do this innovation thing? Instead, 
is part of your standard annual capital planning process, put aside a pool of resources. Those are dollars and people to say, this is the innovation budget. Don't allocate it to a specific project because that's going to change and create the inertia that you talked about. If it's fully funded to a specific program, surprisingly, it always gets spent. And that's when you say, you know, right? You get yeah. to the end of it. And you know, my wife works in advertising. Success for her is on time and 98% of budget. If they do that, the client is thrilled, except they know what they're executing on. If your innovation program is like, hey, we spent 98% of the budget, we did it, spent it on time, well, that isn't necessarily success. So you need that ability in flight to course correct. From a startup's perspective, and probably part of this is just because you're trying to disrupt an industry like financial services, you're dealing with, you know, not even 800 pound gorillas, you're dealing with trillion pound gorillas. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so probably by definition, they have to kind of take an approach where they take off a small piece of something and try to just focus on that. And maybe over time, if they're successful, they kind of layer additional things in. But at a macro level, do you feel like that whole kind of idea around unbundling that you've heard, you know, you'll see like people talk about Craigslist or talk about other types of industries kind of being unbundled. Do you see that happening kind of in financial services where customers want to interact with 15 to 20 different vendors or a dozen vendors or whatever it is, and they're all maybe connected somehow loosely through APIs or whatever, or are the days of I'm getting the majority of my, my services through a single monolithic institution, is that, is that going to be more likely to be kind of what we continue to see for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. If you had to place a bet on, on, on one of those, you know, what would it, what would it look like? Do you think? Well, this is one of the biggest impacts the iPhone had other than keeping us glued to a screen for 10 hours a day. It's conditioned us to tailor a whole set of point applications into a single thing that I don't care that I flip between five different buttons on my phone anymore to get what I want because it's highly personalized, right? If you looked at, call it the app genome on your iPhone or your Android, right? It's highly tailored to you and you don't care because it exactly matches your needs. You tailor your music channel, hello Spotify. You want a personalized mutual fund, hello Betterment. And that propagates all the way through our financial lives, particularly as digital allows us to take so much of the friction out. And that's actually where too often, I think you've heard me use this one quite a bit too, we just put digital lipstick on the analog pig. We don't solve the underlying actual experience issues. We just put a digital interface in front of it. So let's think about your mortgage application. I'm not sure the last time you got a mortgage. Two years ago, yeah. No, fresh in my, relatively fresh. So. Yeah, and were you shocked that even though it had a little more digital, the, it was excruciatingly painful and it never made you want to buy or sell property. Oh again. yeah. I mean, it was still 87 steps. It was lots of emails that didn't tell you anything where you had to log into a special interface due to security concerns. I and mean, understand all of that, but, and you couldn't access it via your phone. So I had, you know, I had to wait until you were in front of your desktop. It was from a friction perspective. And obviously, you know, you talk about like BJ Fogg's behavior model or whatever. My motivation was sufficiently high where I was willing to overcome all of those issues. But yeah, it was definitely tedious and, and it's the efficiencies gained with the tech was marginal at best, you know. I'm sure someone there was very proudly talking about their all digital experience. <laughs> but if you said, I don't care about my digital experience, I care about my user experience, and it was horrible. 
Yet look at someone like a rocket mortgage. They didn't just make it all digital. They replumbed the system and the processes they go through. I don't care if my existing bank offers me a mortgage unless it is at a rate that is significantly better. If they're putting that much friction in the process, it's like, why do I have to give you my bank statements? You're my bank. That was my experience two years ago. I'm like, this makes no sense. You have to keep explaining these things. It's like, well, you didn't actually solve the problem. Well, I'm going to gravitate to whoever can actually solve my problem. Now, am I going to pay a tremendously higher rate for that? No, but whoever can deliver the most value that's optimized for value delivered and friction taken out and for something like a, a home, right, where majority of mortgages, you know, at least that we were offered, were all priced pretty competitively. The one who won is the one who actually got me through the process as fast as easy as possible. Well, and you mentioned the transparency too, and and how that's enabling a lot of this stuff. Like you know, think about like robo advisors and the sort of sarcasm I would imagine that financial advisors probably had, or the when that first sort of came out that, that consumers are going to trust a robot more than they're going to trust me. And then it turns out for a lot of people, at least it's like, yeah, uh, actually <laughs> I do believe that they're going to do a better job than, than, than Joe who took however much training. Yeah. It's got to be disruptive for them. Well, look at the three biggest custodians, uh, Schwab, TD and Fidelity that sit behind the majority of advisors now all offer their own robos. And I don't think the advisor goes away completely, but their role changed dramatically, which is we now know that the role of the stock picker is over. That era has ended. That's been proven. How do you build wealth? Well, you need to invest consistently regardless of market going up and down. You need to do it with a market exposure that is cost efficient from both the fees and the taxes. Nothing does that better than a robo does, except the robo doesn't have human empathy and understand the human condition <laughs> to help you go solve these other things. So, I mean, it's a joke that John Stein at Betterment and I've kind of had as an argument for close to a decade now, which was no one wants to talk to their advisor until they need to talk to their advisor. At which point, like, the machine doesn't cut it. Right. Yeah, you need to be talked off of a ledge. And we haven't had that yet. The robo-advisors haven't dealt with a, a severe market correction really yet. That'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. In particular, as it relates to wealth, but you know, probably all of banking, we're going to see the future is going to belong to the cyborg. That it is going to be no longer this environment where it's either kind of all people or all tech do it yourself. Those two things need to blend, that the ability to charge you know, 1% fees as a financial advisor those days are quickly waning, and they're going to need to figure out how to do it efficiently, and they're going to need to figure out how do I serve you know, as compliance and technology costs go up for them. They either need more big clients or just serve a lot more smaller clients. The only way they're going to be able to do that is through technology. Have you seen any examples of, of organizations that are leveraging data well in terms of not just sending me a more tailored email based on my, you know, my interests or whatever, but to improve my customer experience? Is anybody doing that really well? People talk about Venmo a lot. It seems a little creepy to me. <laughs> 
the not- the notifications of like so and so liked my purchase is, is always struck me as odd. But uh, well, that probably hits a different generation <laughs> than you or I. But yeah, or. Or, I mean, this is an interesting dynamic. One of the faster growing segments that Venmo is seeing is grandparents sending money to children or parents sending to adult children. In which case, if I get my birthday present from my mom and my sister likes it, I wouldn't find that weird at all. There's a huge advantage to the incumbents because they have the data. They just need to choose to use it differently than they have before. Because right now, too often they spend all of their time mining for the wrong things. Yes, I like that they do my fraud protection, yet they do a horrible job of learning you know, my actual behaviors and how they do that. And they do very little effort against understanding, hey, what can we do differently and begin to experiment with it. Imagine if and this is why Amazon, when we think about how it can disrupt financial services, they have a whole host of data about you, and they're really good at mining it to deliver non-intuitive offerings to you just based on the experiences they've seen. I don't know about you, but like Amazon recommends you look at this, and you're like, holy cow, that wasn't even something I was searching for, but I totally want to understand you know, what I've that I've seen a lot does. with like Instagram, right? Like with the Instagram ads, it's like – stuff that I don't remember talking about with anybody or thinking, you know, even thinking about and being kind of surprised based on the unique combination of things that I am into. Like a recent one was like a day, like a chessboard that you can play remotely with your kids where like the pieces move and you're interacting with it through the app or whatever. That would be something that I would, I would probably use like with my son and it never occurred to me. This is why my daughter now has a teepee, thanks to Pinterest. Uh, (laughs) You know, and I had not searched for teepees or tents on Pinterest. I wasn't even searching for kids' playhouse, per se. But boom, a recommended pin, you know, was this teepee. And I was like, yep, buying that right now. Yeah. With the financial services stuff, it seems like to a large degree it would be harder because these are, you know, I'm I'm not trying to change checking accounts or add credit cards or whatever kind of on a regular basis. Well, like you were saying, I mean, active investing isn't necessarily even a good idea. Let's just take active and cut investing. And this is where I think so many banks, innovation can exist at the user experience level. It can be at the tactical level, those operational things or the transformational level. And where I think banks need to rethink their business and their strategy is they're used to selling you products. If they were to think about selling you actions or outcomes, then suddenly the host of this data and what they can be able to provide you as a service that you'd be willing to pay for is very different than saying, hey, Sean, here's a new credit card with the following features or the checking account that has incremental little value compared to the other thing you had, but I'm, you know, I'll give you $500 to do it. And you're like, all right, well, how painful is it? Cause I want the $500. <laughs> it's actually going to be worse. But if they were to say, Hey Sean, we're going to help you live a better financial life, but here's the deal. We're going to use a host of this data to help you save more and save in the right places to use credit when you need to do credit. And there's a monthly fee attached to it, but we're going to show you 
based on your history, here's your trajectory and here's how we bend that curve. And so the Johnson household, if you know you follow the recommendations, this is how that curve changes. I bet you would pay that and I bet that you'd be a much stickier customer and you'd be a much longer term profitable customer as they do find products that they can layer in that are better for you and match their finances. Sure. Yeah, we've talked internally about just with some of the the relaxing around accredited investors and, and some of the things that that would theoretically open up. It's been a little surprising to me that you haven't seen more more offerings kind of tailored to those types of investors through some of the traditional financial institutions. Maybe there maybe there are good reasons for that. I don't know. But um, Well, I can tell you what some of the good reasons are. I don't know if you looked at what bank profits are lately, but they're at record highs when the cost of borrowing for the bank is practically zero still, slightly above that now. They just got a massive corporate tax cut and the economy continues to boom. So you're not seeing default rates go up and the prices that they can charge, whether it's their commercial or their consumer customers, you know, for debt. And that's one of our problems is so much of banking, the profitability is driven by debt. What is the spread on how I can get money in versus what I lend it out at? We need to rethink that model. Let's talk a little bit about blockchain. I mean, you, you mentioned Bitcoin a little while ago <laughs> on the hype cycle where it seems like we're probably and maybe not the trough of disillusionment, but a trough of disillusionment. But I mean, there's been a lot of pilots that have been talked about, and um, it doesn't seem like there's a ton that's sort of happened in terms of kind of real world in production types of things, either you know on the private blockchain side or whatever. But from what you've seen, like, what are your thoughts both on the the sort of the underlying tech of what you theoretically can do with a distributed sort of ledger and when that's actually a good idea and when that's additive and then be on folks sort of interest in either providing exposure to tokens or even kind of leveraging their own tokens or whatever. I mean, have you seen stuff that's that's really kind of compelling or interesting to you, especially kind of coming out of some of the incumbents or are they still sort of staying away from this for the most part? Yeah, great question. Lots of parts there. And I, let's start with when distributed ledgers are not new. They've been around for a really long time. And the answer to everything is not always blockchain. Why use a blockchain when you could use a traditional distributed ledger that is cheaper to operate and works just well? And why use a distributed ledger when it actually a database is what you need? It's so easy to play the buzzword bingo. When's the last time you hired a hammer company? You didn't hire a hammer company. You hired a construction company. And the type of the company you hired was different if you were building a high rise or you were building a house. So why do we throw it around? It's like, oh, we're a blockchain company. It's like if the problem you're solving is blockchain, you know, that's a circular reference. Now, is there a lot of legitimate use for blockchain? Yes. It's interesting, though, and we're not there yet, that I had the CEO of Currency Cloud on Breaking Banks couple months ago, and we we're talking about the last mile problem. The episode is actually titled The Last Mile on Provoke.fm. And the challenge being, if you're solving the middle part of this, but it is still is really painful to get the information in or the information out, if I've accelerated the middle part, have you, I actually really solved any of the problem, right? If I've solved the easiest part of that. So where I'm seeing the most interesting applications in particular with blockchain and distributed ledgers, is either being wholly used within a single organization or within closed networks. 
so great example is there's a very large bank that we spend a lot of time with that is putting all of their treasury management on the blockchain in terms of how they're they're using it because it's a global bank. So every day they have to reconcile what their risk capital is and what they're holding in reserves. By putting it on an internal version of blockchain, and the reason they did blockchain instead of just a distributed ledger is they have to share pieces of this with their regulators and with the outside audits. So from an audit but, perspective, yeah, okay. Right. But so the blockchain allowed them to share pieces of it you know, versus everything and have the audit side of this. But they freed up hundreds of millions of dollars that they already had on their books that now they can actually use for lending. Super interesting. No, another company that is using cryptocurrency for their internal cash management. So they use Bitcoin to move money from one country to another and instantly change it back into fiat currency. But it is faster and cheaper for them to do that internally than it is to do a traditional bank transfer. Seems like there would potentially be like an, even an arbitrage opportunity for them there too, just because I know that there's fluctuations in price across borders. That doesn't sound like that's the primary reason why they would be doing that. But. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things they're trying to get out of, which is, you know, in the three days that it currently takes me to be transferring money around, I'm taking currency risk, whether I like it or not. And so this is a way to take the currency risk out as well as the time factor and you know, they control the transaction completely. If they're getting in and out of Bitcoin, I mean, are they, how are they able to do it with that level of speed? Are they like using like lightning or something like that? Or how do they do that? That's some of the detail I can share, except they had to build out on both sides who their liquidity providers were going to be. What else are you sort of interested from an emerging tech perspective either specifically as it applies to fintech or, or just sort of in general? I'm simultaneously fascinated and scared to death of where we go with AI. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not in an Elon Musk sort of way, although I can see his point, not on the flip side, you know, those who say it's going to be the greatest thing ever. I start to begin to question and worry about the moral implications of when we've completely abdicated our own sense of ownership over the question, the answer to it. Yet at the same time, one of the reasons I can't let it go is I would look at the financial situation of the majority of Americans and say, it scares me and it scares them. There's Pew Research that shows 84% of Americans say their number one or their number two stress is running out of money. And that's something that's getting worse as we take away social safety nets. That stress level goes up. So the question is, so with AI, we could have you know, that person on your shoulder who answers that every question for you. Sean, can you afford that vacation? Sean, should you be getting this mortgage versus that mortgage? But the question is, who's providing that? As Facebook has reminded us, if you're not paying for it, you are the customer. I would say... I accept that they own all of my information and will be monetizing it some other way. And I'm fine with that because of uh, what I get out of it. I personally have decided I'm not fine with that. But if I'm looking at the ability to bring great advice that alleviates stress to the masses 
what are the implications for who owns that? How are they monetizing it? What does that mean for us as the individuals? Is it being used for good? Is it being used for bad? Is it actually taking our own sense of ownership away from ourselves? Yet at the same time, it's here. It's not going away. Do you feel like the concern, and I've heard this expressed in different arenas, but obviously financial, uh, the financial area is one of them in, in the sense of it accelerating the widening sort of income gap, it accelerating that because now the people who are going to have access to the best information or the best machines that have the most data to train on and are able to learn the fastest or whatever will concentrate wealth kind of even more than it already has. Is that a legitimate worry or, or is that less of a concern from your perspective? I actually think it might go the opposite because what is one of the most exciting things about financial technology broadly, not just AI, is what used to be either unprofitable market segments or unprofitable products, I can now actually bring those to the masses. The potential for fintech to be one of the greatest drivers of financial inclusivity and hopefully to shrink those gaps Becomes, well, I don't know that you ever shrink the gap between the top 1%, but can we close the disparity between, call it the 99th percent up to the, you know, the last 2%? Yeah, probably. Or, you know, in a much better way than we ever have before. Do you get involved in conversations at all around the basic income thing? I mean, I, I know that's not really a tech problem necessarily. Although there's arguments that people would suggest that maybe tech is going to be what's going to force an issue where you have to try to explore things like that. But are people talking about that with any level of seriousness? Economically, it seems like there's some problems with that idea. Are there? Just logistically, like how much money you have to create to do something like that, you know? There have been some economists that have said that it actually could end up saving us money. Really? Interesting. Where would you recommend kind of reading about that? Oh, now, now you asked the challenging question. I will have to find that for you. <laughs> yeah, find it. it. I'd, be, I'd be curious. But, I'll put it in the notes. But this is, this is what I would point you to. Do you know that the UN publishes an annual report on happiness, on global happiness? Is this the one around like the level of income above which you don't care anymore? Is it? I think that ends up embedded in it, but it actually just looks much more broadly and looks at if you really want to look at the well-being of a country, GDP is the worst possible measure. And there have been several countries and economists that have been pursuing this idea of gross domestic happiness. One of the things they found that the countries that do the best on gross domestic happiness are in the Danish region. And what do they have in common? They all have universal health care. They all have universal free education that's top-notch. They've put in place a whole bunch of social safety nets, including a version of UBI, and happiness goes through the roof. Now, you could also argue that, okay, but look at the U.S. is hands down you know, one of the most productive countries and most innovative countries. Don't we need that pressure to cause innovation? Yes, to some degree. I don't think that necessarily goes away if we were to create, you know, a country and uh, I believe it's uh, Jeffrey Sachs is the economist from Columbia that leads that UN effort. But, you know, what he talks about, if, if we look at the trade off of would you rather have universal misery 
or trade off some of the fast pace and the innovation, which, by the way, some of it might be moving faster than it should and generally raise the level of life satisfaction in a country. Is that a trade off we'd be willing to make? The beauty of financial and other technology is the ability to do some of this is going up. And the question will become, so where do we actually derive the purpose then that gives life satisfaction, which is another key ingredient in the happiness indexes, do people have purpose? I think it personally, if we were to shift the stress that people feel in their financial lives and replaced it with other purpose, like, you know, family and community and creative endeavors, whether that creative endeavor is something like invention or art or gardening, that I think not only would general happiness go up, I actually think our overall productivity as a society would go up. You know, just think how unproductive things are. When you're sitting worrying about everything, yeah. Let's think about some of the things that are completely unproductive. Well, from a financial point of view, the amount of money spent on treatment of illness, many of which are based on bad lifestyle choices, obesity being one of the more important, if people actually you know, had financial incentives to live better lives versus feeling stuck in what they're doing, or if people had more time to be with family, you know, what's one of the signs for being at risk is actually absence of a father figure in the home is the drivers. You know, so can we at in what is one of the biggest drains, you know, on society that you can say is completely waste and unproductive is the idea of we incarcerate so many of certain parts of a population that if we can address some of the grassroots issues of this, let's not talk about prison reform. Let's talk about how we need fewer prisons. Wow. We ended on a heavy, on a heavy, (laughs) I took us there, but that's the opportunity, opportunity, right? That is the opportunity within financial technology to promote financial inclusion and to bring more people into the system. And with those resources, can they do other things that make the other parts of their life happier and more productive? And to me, that's the promise. And the number one reason I'm excited about fintech is that reason. And in order to do that, though, we need innovation. You know, bringing it full circle, if we maintain the status quo of how we approach the world and people's finances and companies' finances, that isn't sufficient for me. Got it. That's awesome. So for folks that want to learn more about the stuff that you're working on, how can they find you? Uh, listen to Breaking Banks and the FinTech 5 podcast at provoke.fm, or you can check out what we do at Forge at ftforge.com. Awesome. Jason, super generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Um, Always learn a ton from you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, sir. My guest today was Jason Henricks. Be sure to check out the show notes at digintent.com slash podcast. And that wraps up another episode of The Disruptors. For more information on how we can help transform your business with technology, visit us at digintent.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, would love a quick review on iTunes or whichever platform you use. If you do leave a review, uh, let us know to get a chance to win a custom pair of sneakers at digintent.com slash sneakers. Until next time, thanks for listening.